Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's fab to have you here. A quick question for you to start off today's episode with. What are your thoughts on social media? Love it? Loathe it? Feel neutral about it? Or perhaps like me, all three at times. There's so much to keep up to speed with and don't even get me started on being a sleuth with understanding the algorithms. So, any idea what our guest today is an expert of? Well, our guest describes himself as a geek. I would say he's a visionary. At the age of seven, he was writing code on his Amstrad. An Amstrad computer shows you how many years ago it was. And in 2006, he'd created the entry on Wikipedia for social media before most of us had an inkling what it was all about or the implosion it was likely to cause. And today, he is founder and CEO of a communications agency which is ranked as the best social media agency and best specialist communications agency in the UK. Clients include the big shots, many of whom remain confidential. He also lectures at the American University of Paris and has given a TED Talk X on understanding the world of trolls and bots. The agency has notched up numerous awards, including the DRUM, PRCA, UK Social Media, PR Weekly, and most recently, PR Week, UK Power Week 2021, which they've won consecutively over the last three years. He leads a team of 75 who are spread across Asia, the Middle East, the Americas and Europe, and is midst a recruitment drive as we speak. Oh, and if you've got Alexa, you can ask her the latest social media update from his team. So time to introduce our guest, Drew Bemvey, founder and CEO of Battenhall. Hello and welcome to HMP, Drew. Hello, Amelia. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. And as I was saying when I when I was quickly chatting to Drew before we press, press record, I had pages and pages of <laughs> questions and I've had to rule them out with red pen so that we keep in our time slot. But anyway, let's kick off. So Drew, you launched Batten Hall in 2013 very much as a new kind of agency built around the social media economy. Can you share with us a whistle-stop tour of reaching the point of creating Batten Hall? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Um, this is fun. Trip down memory lane. Well, I had been working in the communications industry, mainly public relations, reputation management, things like that, since the late 90s. Uh, so I emerged in the world of work, fresh out of university, uh, not really sure what kind of path I was going to carve, and kind of just landed in public relations. I worked to begin with at the university where I studied, which is Cardiff University. And then there was a careers fair for uh, technology companies, which I was involved in. I just got chatting to one of the one of the attendees there, one of the exhibitors, a software company. Back then, this is like 1999, weren't many high-profile software companies. And this actually certainly wasn't one. But all of a sudden, my career took a turn into digital and technology. And um, really never looked back since. I, I worked at a string of uh, different fascinating places from technology companies to advertising agencies to PR firms. And in the run-up to 2013, in the period between figuring out that social media was a thing, that was like back in 2006, roughly, and and now, I suppose, I just kept fiddling around with new technologies, social networks, uh, code, things like that. Uh, I think probably you could probably 
call me an accidental early adopter of all these things. And there just came a point where more and more people were saying to me, you need to set up your own firm that does this mixture of social media and marketing, advertising, communications, whatever you might call it. And Batten Hall was born. So you've always had that sort of interest in tech and social media from the early days? Always, yes. Um, (laughs) Amstrad CPC 464 was bought for me uh, Christmas, I think it was like, gosh, I was probably about six, seven years old. I really just wanted to play games, to be honest. That's that don't all seven year old boys. But yeah, there was this booklet that taught you how to code a little stick person that runs from uh, right to left across the screen. So I tried my hand at it. And ever since then, whenever I had a computer, as well as playing the obligatory games, I would try my hand at code. And I realized when I started working in the in the PR industry, that PR people aren't technical. And so my inner geekery came into its own when technology became, I suppose, a, a valuable skill to have in a business. And I think um, my fascination has paid off now because it is useful and it's enabled us to really create a business that mixes the, the 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 creative communications arts advertising marketing ideas networking with the technology side of things so i still tinker around with code every now and again but i do largely leave it to the professionals and just when the time is ripe so are your parents are they into tech well yeah this is um partly why i called the company battenhall as well so i, I grew up in a place called battenhall uh, oh, it's wow. actually it's a, it's a suburb of a of a city actually rather than an actual place but it's really harking back to my upbringing. My father was a uh, an engineer, mechanical engineer, and, and my mother, I would say, very entrepreneurial. Um, an immigrant moved from Spain in the 1960s to the UK, and I grew up in this household where they both worked in a factory their whole lives, incredibly hardworking, but both entrepreneurial and technical. There was always... There was always machinery and nuts and bolts uh, outside or in our in our shed where I'd go and imagine I was in the A team. I don't know if you remember this from like the eighties yeah. and the nineties, and they'd get locked in a shed and build this build this contraption that would enable them to escape. And I and I whether it's whether it's spanners, wrenches, and and soldering irons or, or or software on a computer, I have actually always been fascinated, and I and I have my parents to thank for that. That's one of the reasons why Batten Hall was named after um, uh, well for me anyway. Memories of growing up. So does your work ethic stem largely to your parents? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur setting up uh, my own business. I think if you were to ask my colleagues things about me, one of the things I've heard them say is that I just, I I do work pretty hard. I just think you've got to put in all all of your effort into work. And if you love your work, as they say, uh, you'll never work a day in your life. But I I have very much had instilled from me, you know, led led by example from my parents that you you need to work hard if if you're going to make a success of anything. And would you have visualised yourself running the company that you're running, let's say when you were at school? Was Is this a sort of dream? Oh, no, absolutely not. Well, not running a company. I I never had this, I suppose, a vision of of, of running things when I was younger. I was was always a team player, active in, you know, sports. And at at school, we used to do these uh, young enterprise schemes where you'd create a product. But I was was never yearning to be the boss. Um, I always fancied myself, I suppose, as a bit of um, uh, a a technician. I suppose that's where this fascination in tech comes from, um, helping the team. Um, But I think when... 
an opportunity like social media comes along and you do find yourself as one of the first people to try this or one of the first people to have done that and, and you get recognized for it, there is an opportunity to lead by example. I, I would say that's probably the way that I work. I do try to lead by example. And that's why I enjoy building the Battenhall business to what it is today. What has been the biggest change you've seen with social media and your clients' attitude to it since you've launched Battenhall? Oh, that's a good question. Well, change is constant. That's probably the main thing. We mm -hmm. launched the company in 2013 when social media was relatively uh, well established. Most of the big social networks then are the same now. It was Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And this was this is an opportunity for us to help companies. We're a consulting business, so we help companies uh, to do their job by being specialists. So rather than just being like, um, you know, rent a help, actually, we're trying to be very good at what we do. We, we strive to be the best at what we do. And so the opportunity back then is relatively similar to how it is now. Be very, very good at the things that most companies will struggle to be the best at and they want help. That's constant. Most of the social networks are constant, but change is also constant. And so we've always tried to keep... One foot, this is kind of like a motto that we have, one foot firmly planted in the present, but one in the future. And that's constantly changing. And over the last 12 months, especially, there's just been so much innovation in the social media and the technology space, new types of technologies to help us live our lives, navigate through the world of work. And so that, that foot in the future, I find really exciting. But we mustn't forget the mainstream, you know, the, 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 the here and now. And mixing those two things up, that's kind of what keeps us busy every day. It certainly does. I find it enormous. It's like a tsunami every yeah. day. It's like, oh, crikey. How quick were the larger corporates to realise that social media would be a key part to brand awareness, consumer engagement at all, mm. and an important vehicle for them to invest in with marketing and manpower and not just a passing fad? It tends to be something happens that affects them, then they take it seriously. That's what I found since the beginning. That point um, I said earlier that it, it often takes a problem. That would usually be the catalyst. Something goes wrong. They get a, a brand gets affected in some kind of negative way, maybe product failure, maybe some kind of a catastrophe. And all of a sudden it's all hands to the pump and then they can see the opportunity and it goes from there. I mean, social media now heavily influences business models and plans when it comes to marketing budgets and recruitment. Do you see something else as big as social media being created which will influence marketing and recruitment as much? It's continually evolving. You might not call it social media forever. It's kind of why we don't um, solely focus on it. I mean, back at, back at base, you know, where we do our work, the actual work we do ranges from um, designing, animation, advertising. We still do a, 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 a relatively large amount of reputation management and PR. Uh, so social media is influential in all of that. But we're also finding the way that social networks have evolved. With There's this breadth of what you can do, and there's an utter depth as well. And the breadth for example, would be a social network allowing you to uh, create private groups. Now that you can do on WhatsApp, you can also do on Facebook, uh, but it's, it's called dark social. Social media that if you're not in the group, you can't see. That's a big trend. And often it's not social media, it's messaging. So I think a great example of a messaging app campaign that I've seen in the last year, wasn't involved in this in any way, but the World Health Organization released a COVID bot. So you could send a message via WhatsApp to the World Health Organization with questions about COVID, like um, facts and figures, that kind of thing. And it will instantly text you back info that it's retrieved from its archives. Now that I think is a great example. It's not really social media, but it's very closely linked. And um, 
and that's an example of how the future might not be social. It might be something a bit more private. And privacy is a big trend as well. I think we're all a bit, you know, concerned about what might be out there on the internet about us. F future generations certainly are. Um, but that kind of uh, that kind of evolution is it, it is constant, and it's going in a lot of different directions. And going to COVID and that whole the whole world of the pandemic, what has the pandemic shown you about Battenhall? How have you been affected by the pandemic? I think everybody will have felt an almost instant punch in the gut when it first started because the world changes, work changes, and everybody's customers change in some way as well. So for us, we could see it coming. Everybody could see something coming. Not quite sure. We couldn't see it as it as it turned out, obviously. But we're keeping a very close eye on it because we have um, we've got clients all over the world, in particular um, in America, in particular big technology companies who are very progressive when it comes to ways of work, digital first, things like that. So we've actually always embraced what we call total flexible working now. But things like you can work from home when you want, you can shift your hours. Everyone's got a big technology allowance so that they can afford technology that can enable them to work flexibly. We had some customers in industries that didn't fare so well, industries that you can't just work from home, like like travel and leisure. Mm -hmm. And not too many. Um, we are lucky enough, do feel very fortunate, but our work is across all industries and it's all over the world. So in a way, we, we, we were kind of insulated from any one, I suppose, industry or, or type of customer to reduce the amount of work it needed from a team like us. But it did happen. And within the first few weeks, things slowed down a little but we were fortunate enough to also be doing some work with NHS England at the time. And as a company, we decided to offer NHS England, the part of the NHS that we were working with, mm -hmm. a chunk of our time. So we volunteered for the NHS and we started working wow. with them to do coronavirus safety campaigns. And anybody can look them up, um, but uh, the Batten Hall NHS COVID campaigns. We started doing some work in Instagram, uh, TikTok, working with some high profile individuals. And it, and it actually ended up winning awards. And before long, any spare capacity that we had in our team, we didn't do furlough, by the way. Uh, we uh, we retained all staff and any spare capacity we had, we just we just pumped into valuable causes such as what we did for NHS England. But we do digital work and social media work and there was still a lot of demand for it. And within weeks... We were full and we started hiring again. And we've nearly doubled in size in the last year as a result of That's the, incredible. Well, I mean, we are very fortunate. Digital capable teams doing yep. digital first work is kind of what we do. So we do feel very fortunate that we've been busy and we've had a lot to do. Uh, what's tough now, Amelia, is hiring um, on lockdown where you don't see people, you don't meet people and creating a teamwork ethic when nobody's in the same place anymore. That and how are you managing? How are you managing to do that? Well, lots, uh, lots of little things. We try to create the the office ways of work in a virtual world. So we um, we have coffee mornings to replicate the when you walk into an office, uh, have a chat with some colleagues. So every morning it's optional. You can join or at this uh, this video chat that we have. I'm conscious that when work is busy and you can't visibly see the office being empty before nine or or emptying after half five there is a tendency to just work a bit longer as well especially when you're super busy so we, we're keeping a really close eye on on people's well-being at work trying to prevent burnout to be frank when when people are busy they, they can just work longer and longer and longer and in a virtual world there's no visible boundaries between clients in another country who are still working and us or people starting to log on and starting to log off 
So it's just generally being there for one another, but using every digital technology we have at our disposal to create those downtime opportunities to catch up and and foster teamwork that we can. Downtime, I think, is the real challenge, isn't it? It is yeah. so easy, as you were saying, just to keep plugged in and working away. And you can get up at 6 and get on at 6.30 and you can still find yourself still working away at 6.30. It's, I think that's one of the disciplines that people are learning is to say, you know what, stop, I'm going for my walk or I'm going to do my Pilates or F45 or mm. whatever it is to sort of break up the day. There, there is a tendency to just to, I think we all do it sometimes, just to get ahead. Oh, I'll just do this one extra thing because I'll be a step ahead tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it just keeps going, it keeps going. So we, we, we have to be aware of that and aware of the effects that it could have. Before lockdown, we uh, employed a, uh, a full-time and permanent qualified health and well-being coach, and she is our head of people and culture. And in the beginning, her job was mixed with operations, you know, things like looking after the office and finances. Mm -hmm. But over the last year, um, Jenny's been completely dedicated to ensuring that people are well looked after. True. with so many distractions, how do you optimise productivity? I'm pretty old school. I write lists in books and mix that up with the online to-do lists that are shared with colleagues. But uh, focus on lists. Before I took my first um, boss job (laughs) many years ago, I read a review about a book and how it would enable you to be this uh, kind of um, a superhero at productivity. It's called Getting Things Done by Dave Allen. And I've still got the book today. It's on the bookshelf behind me. And it's all about how to keep one list, not many, one list of the things that you need to do ensures that your brain is focused and it's clear. When you don't have a list or when your lists are in lots of different places or like I used to do, you use your email inbox as a list, then it becomes quite stressful and you can't focus on what needs to be done next. So I keep little lists write them in pen and paper on paper tick things off as I go through them I sometimes do that thing that we all do as well as like you, you've done something that wasn't on the list so then you write it in and then you tick it off <laughs> yes. um but I just find that process uh, a bit like trying to remember things if I write it down with a pen on paper I actually properly remember it so I think um well that's that's one of my one of my tips um but it is hard when there's so much information flying around but um yeah uh, I go it's very therapeutic, I think, to have lists. Mm. Now, Drew has the most incredible, this is a quick aside, newsletter called The Social Media Report that is now my go-to every week. And basically, one of the latest apps to be launched that I heard about was through Drew's newsletter, and it, and it is the audio chat app Clubhouse. Now, Drew, you were mentioned in the New York Times mm. as being the first company to recruit a Clubhouse exec. That seems a big commitment an investment for a relatively new app which is still in beta testing and only available on iPhone at this stage. How measured are you when it comes to getting involved and committing to new social media apps being launched? And what is it about Clubhouse that has got you to make this big commitment? Yeah, I find this one quite exciting. When I was uh, at university, I got involved in student media, specifically radio. And so I've, um, I've always had a fascination with the broadcasting, podcasting, radio space. And so when Clubhouse emerged and I thought, yeah, why why hasn't audio social ever been done well before? And it's only a year old, the app Clubhouse, which is, um, for those who've not yet tried it, it's effectively a live chat 
where you can host a show with a number of different people, or you can do it yourself. Anybody can listen in. Um, you can make it private if you want, but it's typically it's done open. And if you were to just open up the app and you're not willing to speak and you just want to listen, you can surf through different chats. You can listen, and if you want, speak. And the serendipity of it really got me hooked. Uh, I've been watching it closely throughout the last year, but properly got involved in early January when I could see the user base just taking off. And I was hosting shows. I was speaking to people I would never have had an opportunity to speak to before, quite high-profile individuals. And I just thought, there's something in it in this. And quite quickly, clients of ours started asking us if we could help them. And there's a team of us here at Batten Hall who were doing similar things to myself, getting involved. And we were hiring at all levels because we've, we're quite busy. And we just thought it made sense for us to put clubhouse skills in the job description for one of the future applicants. And then one thing led to another. And we, we called the role a, a clubhouse executive, which is just a slight <laughs> tweak on a normal job title for us here at Batten Hall. Um, a, a client executive or an account executive is a relatively standard role. So we went for clubhouse executive and um, yeah, it just got noticed. It got picked up by the New York Times who referenced it uh, a couple of times actually. And I got interviewed by, by a few journalists that were uh, interested in this job title being a thing. And um, the reason we did it, not only is, was there demand and there still is demand, but what we wanted to do is ensure that whoever we hired had the skills to be able to transfer across to other audio social were that to become a thing, which it quickly is. So Clubhouse is uh, standalone. It's not owned by another social network, but Twitter has already launched a Clubhouse clone. It's called Twitter Spaces. Tencent, which is the Chinese, like it's like the Chinese Facebook, it owns WeChat and QQ, amongst other things. It's already built a clone, so we should see. And actually, a lot of Chinese firms like Tencent, Capital Coffee is a clone, which is a standalone clone, which has been built in China. Telegram as well has set up audio chats. Everyone's copying Clubhouse. And we're pretty busy here at Batten Hall doing Clubhouse-specific work for clients. In the future, I'm sure it will just expand to all parts of audio social. And I've had members of parliament and journalists join in the shows that I was putting on. That serendipity has really created something quite special in social media. And whether Clubhouse is here to stay or not, audio social, I would say definitely is. And it's creating this, this white space between the, the mainstream social networks and what they've been doing over the last uh, 15 years, 16 years, and, and other types of audio from podcasts to radio and music. I'm finding I'm, I'm consuming more social media and I'm listening to more stuff because of what Clubhouse has done. Uh, so it's not really cannibalizing anything else. It's complementing, which I think is really quite special. Yeah, Clubhouse, I love. So thank you so much for flagging that up because you meet so many people, you learn so much, and it's a, just a fantastic way to connect. I wonder if it will take a bit away from LinkedIn, which is quite sort of flat compared to the audio social, or maybe LinkedIn will bring it mm. in too. Well, this is it. I think that it shouldn't be too long before LinkedIn is considering creating an audio version where you, you've got the community ready-made there. Clubhouse is still really small. I think at the most recent count, only around about 10 million users. Uh, you, you look at something like Facebook, for example, 2.7 billion users. So it's huge. So if one of the biggest social networks nails audio groups, which is essentially what Clubhouse is, then it's going to have a fight in its hand because the commu community is everything. I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know if you can answer, but I'm mm. interested to know about. How does our reliance and heavy usage of social media and therefore energy consumption sit with supporting climate change? Yeah, this is a tough one. There's a lot being said about how technology in general 
is a drain on the planet. Um, it's something that has been brought to light quite recently. It's been pretty high profile with regard to digital currency. So in particular, the use of um, Bitcoin. or just the existence of Bitcoin and its impact yeah. on the planet. But then f- further down the line, you've got this new issue, which is uh, digital content, which is unique. It might be a plot of land in a virtual world, or it might be uh, a Bitcoin, or it might be a piece of digital art. These are known as NFTs, non-fungible tokens. They're in the press as well quite a lot right now. And they're also, these are, for example, pieces of art that only exist online. And they exist in a similar way to how Bitcoin exists. So there is a unique thing somewhere on the internet that needs computers whirring in order to keep it alive rather than an actual painting hung up in a wall, which does not. So this is increasing and increasing. Things that, you know, we're doing here and what I do regularly, we're making sure that we use green energy sources. We're making sure that we're measured in our screen use in general. But Mm -hmm. there is no escaping that there needs to be balance and that race for net zero, which all organizations are, and we as an organization are, very much aware and committed to being balanced. But in in reality, we're not the hardest industry to, to get good at this because we're just people that tend to work from a laptop. It's not like we're a, a, a carbon intense industry. Other industries, however, are. We're actually doing some quite a lot of work with some of our clients around getting that message through to employees, through to customers uh, and and inspiring action in the path towards net zero. So I think it's a huge issue and something that's... I don't think many people wouldn't be bought into as well and committed to to bringing about change. But it's about doing it in a in a way that um, a way that's realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be pragmatic and realistic that people aren't going to stop using screens. And in fact, screen use might get more intense. So it's about things like improvements in technology or balance in general. So stepping away from your screen, getting out, um, spending a little bit less time plugged in all the time, um, and balancing that with green sources of energy as well. So it's, it's a really big issue and, and generally one which I think a lot of education is needed as well. True. what has been your greatest challenge so far, would you say? Gosh, everything seems like a challenge. Day to day, there's <laughs> like, there's micro challenges. So, you know, there'll be a tough situation and you've got to get through it. It might be, you know, we've had pretty much anything that happens in the world, tough things that involve countries or cities or organizations we've been involved in some really tough situations um from natural disasters to terror attacks we've had clients that have been involved and we've tried to help them through some pretty pressured situations and those can be stressful but if you come out the other side as a team and you've you know done something good in the process you get through it i would call those kind of micro stress so I'm putting this stress and pressure into into perspective, absolutely into perspective. Um, but then you've got macro pressures, you know, things like, you know, and for me, I feel like every day you've got an entire team of people, of employees that you've built and you're uh, taking on a mission, on a journey. And every pressure that they experience is a pressure for you as well. Anything from making sure that we are, you know, getting everybody what they need in order to stay fit and healthy or just a computer for the new member of staff, which didn't actually or doesn't always happen. I think the pressure of being responsible for an entire team of people and then for all of the clients that we represent is a pressure. But if you play as a team and if you work, you know, together, it doesn't feel too pressured most of the time, um, even though this has been a challenging year. 
What skill set would you say that you've needed to be at the helm of Batten Hall and to help it grow? Uh, you need to always surround yourself by people that are better than you at things. And that's one thing I learned over the years. You, you need to make sure you work with people that uh, work well with you and as a team. And so I'm surrounded by hugely talented people and we do work as a team in order to get things done. You need to be good at the basics of business as well as the thing that you do. Uh, that one thing that you do that you're trying to do well, like, for example, social media or marketing or advertising. Um, so the business side of things, making sure that you're running a tight ship is really important. I'm lucky in that respect in that I've I have got a business degree and I've always had I've been quite numerate. I've got an A-level in maths and I you know, did statistics and accounting uh, as part of my business degree. So I've, I've absolutely lent on that. But I think you've always got to take learnings from everything that you experience in life. And that's what I've tried to do is figure out what was the best and the worst way of everything that I think I'll probably need to experience in building up a company in Battenhall. And I've just tried to apply it there. So, um, you know, the best of things, for example, you know, one of the things that I've always felt is important is innovation in work you need to have a bit of time to try something new to test new stuff and for a company like ours that's just the lifeblood of the company so i thought mm -hmm. right in the beginning what can we do to ensure that everybody's got a bit of time and brain space to innovate and something that i found in all the companies i'd worked at is nobody is ever 100 percent utilized as a as a worker you can't be working 100 percent of the time and we used to we used to look at the numbers at my old company and we'd notice that if you're totally, totally, totally busy and this company had timesheets, so you're like, got to say exactly what you've done every minute of the day. Wow. Uh, yeah, a lot of companies in our industry do it. Um, we do a version of it, but it's quite it's quite common for a consulting firm, whether you're an accountancy uh, or, a, or a PR firm, you record the time that you've done and then you tally it up at the end of the month to make sure that you're doing the appropriate amount of work for the resources that have been set aside. And a busy person is usually 80% utilized and the other 20% is generally just breaks, training, learning stuff, just a bit of time off. If you use timesheets in a company, it's normally referred to as house time. You shouldn't really account for it and it's just there. And to make innovation work, to test new stuff in a typical company, you're kind of asking people to do something in that 20% of their time or to reduce the other 80%. And I, I just kind of thought, what if we turn this on its head and take that 20% and just encourage people to experiment, to innovate? And if we do it from day one and it's part of the mantra, it should be relatively straightforward. Some people dedicate it to charitable causes, uh, worthwhile causes of some kind. Others do stuff like learn to code, learn a language. They get involved in um, projects as, as groups. That from the very beginning has been, I think, one of the most important things for us because it's enabled us to test out Clubhouse before a client was asking us to and still have the time or learn to code so that we can build better uh, uh, gizmos like Alexa bots. And But I think what's been quite transformative for us as a business is just the amount of work for good causes that we've been able to do where the cause itself did not have the resources available to hire a team of people to do what we're able to do. Stuff like that is fundamental to innovation, to the way social media works best in businesses. And therefore, it attracts the kind of people that want to be innovative in work when they see that we're doing stuff like this. It's on our website, how we work. And then the types of customers and clients that like the sound of this tend to come to us. And that has actually helped build our business because we've attracted people and clients that want that kind of work being done with them, which I just think has been that I hadn't expected, but it's been absolutely marvellous to see develop over the years.
Yeah, it must be wonderful that, that they have a similar value system and culture system. Absolutely. Do you ever doubt yourself, Drew, at all? Oh, God, all the time, yeah. No, I'm, not, I'm certainly not filled with confidence, but you have to just rip the plaster off sometimes and just go for it. And uh, so I was 35 when I set up my first company, so I'm not like a serial entrepreneur or anything like that. I'd just been, just to be honest, I'd spent a long time doing this, roughly the same thing uh, and got a little bit better every year, stuck with it. Uh, yeah, it's just if, if there is an opportunity ahead of you, uh, you'll always have doubts, you know, will it, will it make money? Will it be a success? But if you feel like you've, or if maybe if other people have told you, you've proven that it, the answer to all of those is yes, then it's an absolute no brainer to just take that next step. So um, I'm certainly not a leap of faith type of person. Everything has been I think pretty measured in terms of decision-making for me. Uh, so it's just a case of taking things uh, one step at a time. Drew, you mentioned that you were a Libra, your star sign, which is very much about balance and maintaining mm. balance. How do you cope when the scales are tipped? That's a good question. I think, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm balanced because I'm a Libra, uh, because I know that it's a scales or uh, or vice versa. I'm just, I've had it since a birth. I think hindsight's a wonderful thing but you just have to take learning from everything that you experience and if uh, the, the the scales are tipped in one direction you think right let's go in the other you don't want to be short too short-termist or reactionary in what you do we are heading into the quick fire round before our chocolate break so optimist or pessimist optimist introvert extrovert or ambivert extrovert perfectionist or non-perfectionist <laughs> middle for that one um, perfectionist <laughs> but I'm always in a rush if that makes sense early bird or night owl early bird well you've have you got little children how old are your children oh they're, they're a bit older now so they're not little uh, but they're still at school and ever since they were born I've coped with less sleep so I used to be somebody that could fall asleep anywhere and at any time but now I kind of my wife says that my son's a bit like me I just spring out of bed in the morning and I want to get things done and uh, slow I slow down as the day goes on <laughs> okay have you got your chocolate ready Drew? I have yes okay so Drew is taking me and all of us on a peanut butter uh, adventure I have to say that I've avoided <laughs> this pack for 50 years and so when Drew said it I was like oh okay I've obviously got to try it I'm not a fan of peanut butter anyway I've bought a bag of the mini unwrapped so Drew tell us why we're tucking into this delight well this, this is for me lost Nostalgic. So um, I think we have the same uh, dose uh, or, or package <laughs> or, or version of uh, what I have in front of me, which is uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So, I mean, you said, uh, what's your favourite chocolate? I love all types. I quite like dark chocolate. Um, mm -hmm. I like the chocolate with bits in it, like... Um, mm -hmm. It's not like salted caramel, things like that. But for me, food is... It invokes memories and... When you eat something that you don't often eat, you think about the first time you ate it or where it came from and things. So I thought about this one. Um, in the old world, I used to travel a bit for work. Not loads, but I, I always enjoyed going to new places. And work has taken me to America quite a lot, where I think Reese's uh, peanut butter cups uh, have been high, high profile for a long time. And here they're quite mm -hmm. niche. They're not everywhere. Mm -hmm. But I always used to come back with a big bag of them uh, for me, obviously. Uh, no, for my kids and my family and stuff. <laughs> and uh, there's there's Reese's peanut butter cups and there's the other one called um, Hershey's. Is it Kisses? Hershey's Kisses? Oh, Kisses, yes. Those I don't like. They taste like plastic um, to, to my mind. Well, I'm glad you've opened my mind to them. They're not actually 
as horrendous as I thought they would be. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the words success and failure? What do they mean to you? I think, well, flip it on its head. Every failure is an opportunity to learn and move forward. And I think that is uh, something that if you're an entrepreneurial type, you've got to see some opportunity in failure. And um, I think success, you just got to do people proud. You know, I'd like to think that um, my father's up there looking down on me and my mother could look across uh, from the other side of town and uh, be proud of me, hopefully one day. I'm, sh- I'm sure they already are. But that would be success in my eyes, just making making people proud. How wonderful. So on to the well-being side, Drew, Mm. I mean, you seem a busy, 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 busy man. I have no idea how you fit in the time for your probably very patient wife and your kids. But how important is incorporating well-being into your day and do you manage to achieve it? Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's not that hard if you take it seriously. And when we're in the world that we're in where digital technologies have enabled us to do work from anywhere and work faster and smarter it isn't too hard to take it easy take breaks so I do things like I work flexi time and flexi hours I've always worked a bit from home well actually not always but ever since probably the last 10 years ever since it became Mm -hmm. a little bit more normal Taking little and often uh, breaks in in your day is really important having rest on a weekly basis like you know a weekend and doing something with your spare time having you know a project you know that kind of thing is really important but you've got to take breaks throughout the year have good holidays and spend your downtime with um with your loved ones and so long as you do that on a daily on a weekly and on an annual basis you just make time and take time technology is your friend in doing all of that then you can stay balanced and most importantly work as part of a team uh, because otherwise you get swamped and you get problems and you can't talk to anybody about them. And a problem shared is a problem halved and all that kind of thing. So that's how I do it. I'm sure I'm not perfect and my wife is very tolerant of my uh, addiction to work. (laughs) But I do feel like I'm pretty balanced as well. What exercise do you take, Drew? Do you take any physical exercise? I'm thinking you'd say yes. I'm pretty active, but not hugely active. I used to run a lot. Um, I was a former competitive uh, sprinter, so I used to do the 100 metres. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, 11.7 seconds was my personal best when I was a teenager. I, wow. As a little kid, I, I ran for the men's team. I was kind of a bit more grown up than most people at my age. And um, uh, then I went to university and focused a little bit more on the other things than sport. I still did a bit of sport. but uh, And then since then, I just... I like the outdoors. I have a bike. I go for bike rides with my son whenever. Lockdown life for us was actually, it was a lovely experience because I have my family, you know, around. So actually spending a little bit more time with family has been lovely and everything else has been obviously awful, you know, what's unfolded for the world around us. But those of us who are fortunate to have our health and our loved ones around us, it has actually been a, a lovely experience. And so one thing that my son and I would do is at lunch break, we just go for a bike ride and life's never been like that I used to get up really early travel into London come all the way back home see my kids that one day a week uh, that I work from home I'd do the school run and then the weekend of course as well but I've really relished this opportunity to spend more time with them and I go for walks got uh, got two dogs so I take little dog walks um, I used to go to the gym when gyms were open and safe and all that kind of thing so I've not done that much in the last year but I'm certainly no uh, competitive athlete and I don't run anymore what triggers your stress, Drew, and how does it affect you physically, mentally, spiritually? Mm. Um, I think pressures. So I do try to work quite hard to alleviate pressures. You know, there's many ways we can do it, like um, seeing what's coming that might trigger a pressure, um, an argument or 
a target that's not been hit and you need quiet time you need a bit of you know count to 10 you know that kind of thing and you need people around you that can help so you just got to talk i think that's the most important thing when you don't talk whether it's to you know your other half or colleagues or friends around you then problems can can multiply can't they and i think that's mm-hmm. um so it's really important just to talk to put things in perspective i think perspective is really important and that, that, i suppose those are the ways that i uh, cope yeah, the brain can definitely massage things. Mm. Once something that can start as a small seed, and sort of an hour later, you're having almost hot sweats over it, and it's just that br- it's just allowing the brain to just well, it is it is a form of massaging it yeah. in a way. Do you have your phone on or off at night? Off. Well, I'm not. It's not off. Off. Um, uh, I'm always worried that it's on silent. It's on silent. It? I have that setting where it's automatic from one time of the evening to another time. It doesn't buzz or flash, and I think that's quite important because being on screens uh, late at night and early in the morning is not good for you, and you don't want your phone going off. Um, I'm always, I'm always quite worried that something bad will happen to somebody I know that needs help in the middle of the night. You know, it's it's happened before, and I'm always worried it will happen again. So I never fully turn off my phone. Pretty much never, to be honest. So, Drew, would you say that you sleep pretty well? Oh, yes, I think I'm a good sleeper. Um, I find that if you wear yourself out enough, you'll feel tired at the end of the day. I read before bed sometimes, or I'm quite a slow reader when it comes to books, but I've always got about five books on the go. I'm pretty terrible at reading. But I kind of read for a living as well, and don't we all, but my profession, there's a lot of writing involved, reading and writing, the written word. So um, my eyes are always tired towards the end of the day. And because I'm an early bird, not a night owl, then um, I tend not to stay up too late. And I've now got one of these, it's, it's an Apple Watch, I've got an Apple Watch now, but I always used to, before having one, have technology that helped tell you how you're sleeping. I've never had an app actually tell me, but I sort of feel that you can, some mornings you wake up and you're really on it. Drew, what music makes you feel good? And what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? Oh, good question. I like a very eclectic mix of types of music. Mm -hmm. If you were to put me on the spot, there is an artist called Ben Folds, and he had a band called Ben Folds Five. I saw him play probably about 10, 15 years ago, and he was last in the UK. Uh, So Ben Folds Five, I would miss the most. Um, I don't listen to it all the time, but it's an old one and a goodie, oldie and a goodie. Um, Books. Do you know what? I've read it a few times and it's one of my favourites. Um, mm-hmm. Mr. Nice by Howard Marks. It's one of the few books that I've read over and over again. It's hilarious. It's about, I mean, Howard Marks, uh, I think, is, it reminds me of holidays as well. So a bit like the bit like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Uh, it just reminds me of being in nice places. And so I'd probably read it over and over and over again. Still laugh. It's just funny, entertaining. I think not many books manage to nail that. So, Drew, what advice would you give to anybody who's looking at setting up their own business or running their own business at the moment? Don't feel like you need to invent something brand new that, (laughs) I don't know, might make you a quadrillionaire or something like that. Focus on that thing that you feel like you can do really, really well and you can make a business out of it. That was a piece of advice I'd picked up from uh, endless business books uh, that I've got adorning my shelves that it's okay to do something a little bit better than what it's currently, how it's currently being done, or maybe in a slightly different way. That's what I've done anyway. I I haven't tried to invent anything um, outrageously new, but rather a tweak on the old version of it uh, with a focus on quality and care and an eye to the future. And 
if you put those things together, you could probably find something that you could do uh, that will be useful as a business interest, but also that you'll enjoy and that will keep you going for a good few years. That's really refreshing advice, especially on this thing that you don't have to create something that just isn't out there that, as you say, is going to make you mega, mega rich. Mm. It's very refreshing to hear you say, just do something, but just do it better. Yeah. And you don't need to be the best. You should always, I think, strive to be the best uh, because in my mind anyway, you should be up at the, the quality end of the spectrum. I've never really felt a drive or a passion to be the cheapest or the... Or yeah, the... nor me. I want, <laughs> to be, I want to be the best, not actually to... It's not an ego pop. It's Perhaps it's an internal ego where I just want to be good at what I do. I want to be really good and I want to get better and better and better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've always felt that there's merit in both ends of the spectrum existing, you know, the, uh, but the race to the bottom is not a good thing uh, for, to be in, I think, for your, for, for your heart and soul. So whilst you might be able to make some money by selling something a bit cheaper than somebody else by doing a, doing a great deal, I don't think it would be motivating to me personally. No. And um, not everybody needs to find the cheapest way of doing something, but rather there's usually a way of showing how you could do something better than somebody else can right now. And that's, that's where I think, um, all the all the good business ideas uh, that where they come from where have you had to have hope and patience true mm. can be business personal life anywhere so here's an example of maybe where hope and patience have, have, have become involved um i've got two beautiful kids it took time for them to start arriving and mm -hmm. it you're never quite sure what's going to be around the corner little health scares or things like that and sometimes you just got to hope for the best and i'm i feel very fortunate that we've got two beautiful and healthy uh, kids and uh, you know when before they're even around you just hope and hope and hope for the best so i'd say family um and well patience i think the world of business uh things <laughs> things don't happen overnight you just gotta you gotta chip away at it do your absolute very best and be patient that what you're doing uh, is going to pay off in the long run which um well at least we're all busy and we're keeping ourselves uh, uh in business <laughs> and myself and my colleagues can um can at least um have that to be proud of that we're around and we've got we've got something to keep our, ourselves out of trouble so, Drew, finally, where can the listeners find out more about Batten Hall, hear your latest, find you at Clubhouse, you know, get the newsletter? OK, so battenhall.com. Um, that's B-A-T-T-E-N-H-A-L-L, -L, battenhall.com. It's got links to all of, all of the above. Uh, and if you just Google it, you'll find me and I've got all these side projects running like my weekly newsletter. And if you just look up my name on ted.com, you'll see my TED talk that I did about social media. That was uh, uh, just over a year ago that it came out online. That's a very good listen, I would <laughs> recommend. No, but it really is. It's a real eye-opener into the world of trolls and bots. Yes, yeah. I think, uh, And how to squash them. Social media is a force for good, uh, but it, 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 it's harmful as well. And my talk is all about being aware of the dark so that you can uh, aim for the light and for us all to educate ourselves because the governments and the lawmakers... They won't keep up. And you'll go in a clubhouse chat and you could get trolled. You could get, um, uh, you know, abuse hurled at you on, on Twitter or Facebook Live. And a lot of the people that follow you might not even be real. They're there to promote the actions of a, a politician somewhere in the world who's paid them to be there. Oh, so much terrible stuff happening, but I think more good. And that was kind of the, the thought behind the talk that I was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity to put on. 
I would love to say the hugest of thank yous, Drew. I have been so excited to get hold of you, to chat with you and hear your gems. What you've achieved is incredible. And um, I've really, really enjoyed it. And so, yeah, just a massive, massive thank you. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure, Amelia. It's been lovely chatting over um, some um, peanut butter chocolates. And thank you so much for having me on. Anyway, before I go, it's time for my book recommendation and quote for this episode. So the book is called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and How to Harness It by the award-winning professor of the University of Michigan and an expert on controlling the unconscious mind, Ethan Cross. I heard Ethan talk at the How To Academy and he's just fascinating and his book is so interesting. You will learn loads, including the why to Nadal's numerous idiosyncratic mannerisms when he plays a tennis match. So I really recommend it. And the quote is, Laughter is an instant vacation by Milton Berle. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to get the latest episode. You need to follow Hope and Patience. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it, or better still, share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quote songs, can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Don't forget to let me know what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and also none of. So until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Open Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.